Hi, my name's Paul. And my name is Riz. And you're listening to No Garnish. Well, everybody's heard about the bird. About the bird, bird, bird. About the bird, bird, bird. is the word. Bird is the word. Bird, 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 was good. Right? I mean, I'm in the mood. I'm feeling um <laughs> it almost went into like um like an art like an art performance art performance it? <laughs> it's like what we do on a monday night at my acting class like be be statues right so paul we have gone into surfing land we are. We're in Hawaii this episode. It's like, like you know, like in Mario, the game. We've gone down one of the uh, tubes. Yeah. And I, I was so desperate after the last one just to do something that's a lot more fun than Nazis. <laughs> it's a low bar. Pretty much anything is more fun than Nazis. I was going to say, like, on, on, on the scale of not fun to fun, where would you place Nazis? <laughs> Zero. Zero. What about zombie Nazis? They're fun. They're fun. They're, they're a step up. No matter how you cut it, Nazis are in the rank, the lower ranks, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're kind of like with Jesus and crucifixion and uh, <laughs> Romans and... Are uh, Romans are fun. Are they fun? I think Romans are fun. Oh, are they? Jesus isn't. I don't know. He might have been fun. He could have been a real party animal. Yeah, he could have been, couldn't he? I mean, he fed 5,000 people with a fish. That's quite fun. Yeah, do you know that song, Jesus Was a Social Drinker? <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Chuck Prophet. So, Paul, uh, what's the cocktail that we're drinking this week? Today we are drinking Halikalani's. Well, Halikalani's? Sorry, it just instantly makes me go into Hawaiian mode. I was um, going to say, Halikalani sounds like a sort of religious festival. It's Hawaiian, and the word means um, house close to heaven. So, a, a house good enough for heaven? Yeah. Wow. Because the Halikalani is a hotel in Waikiki. Oh, okay. And it has a restaurant attached to it called The House Without a Key. Oh, okay. And that is where the Halikalani cocktail was created and named after the hotel. Does that make sense? Yeah. How, yeah. how do you get into the house if it's not got a key? It's open to all. Oh! Yeah. Is it actually? Does it have many keys? Very well <laughs> Security <screened>. lock? <laughs> yeah, it's probably got tons of keys, doesn't it? <laughs> like Doberman's <laughs> patrolling. <laughs> It's in spirit, it's open to all. <laughs> yeah, so it's a cocktail from the 1920s. It's actually before Tiki. It's a proto-Tiki cocktail. Proto-Tiki. So it's like a tropical cocktail, but before Tiki was a thing. I love the word proto. Proto-Tiki, that it sounds good, so cool, it? doesn't yeah. it? One of the few tropical cocktails that's made with bourbon. Oh, interesting, because yeah. I remember you said that when we talked about doing this. It's quite an interesting kind of thing. Why? Why is that? I would guess that it was probably because bourbon was a spirit that American holiday makers were familiar with. Right. More so than rum. Right. Bit I don't know. I don't know, but that's my guess. That's your guess, yeah. Yeah, that's my yeah, best yeah. guess. A bit like when you go on holiday and you see a fish and chip shop. 
Yeah, kind of a bit like that. Ah, oh, it's all right. Even though we're in India, you can still get fish and chips. It's fine. The first time I tried it, I wasn't blown away, but it's really grown on me. And particularly this year, I've been drinking quite a few Helicolanis. Oh, really? Do you feel a bit closer to God? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's one of those nice cocktails that you can make it with other spirits. I mean, properly, it's bourbon. But I've made them with rum. I've made them with whatever I've got to hand. Oh, okay. And it always works. It's almost foolproof. So what's in it? So you've got spirit, bourbon, you've got half an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of orange juice, half an ounce of pineapple juice, a little bit of demerara syrup, tiny bit of grenadine, and some Angostura bitters. And with the Angostura bitters, a little trick that I learnt off Greg on how to drink, and I think he got it from Jeffrey Morgan, Tyler, flame the Angostura bitters. Because classically, you meant to just dash them into the shaker. Okay. But if you flame them over the top of the drink, oh, oh wow, it tastes much better. I've got to say... So it caramelizes the sugar in it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. It's good. And that was the first flavor that I noticed, was that lovely caramelized burnt sugar flavor. Yeah. And you get the smell of it. You get the smell, yeah. But also, you get the amazing kind of spectacle of you flamethrowing the top of it. With... And it's so fun to do. Is it? Yeah. It looked a lot <laughs> of fun. Who doesn't want to play with flamethrowers? I know, I know. I was impressed by how much flame came out of it as well. Yeah, the first time I did it, I was as well. I wasn't Wait. expecting quite so much. Yeah. yeah. So you, you could literally like have that as a weapon, just a little bit of orange yeah. bitters yeah. in your in your pocket. Absolutely, yeah. So maybe like if someone attacks you at night, you could be like... Psh, 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 with your little them. kit. So you've got your metal straw. <laughs> yes, this is it. Like everyone should carry one of those. Little plastic Mexican hats. Yeah. Well, I saw a guy on the internet who worked out how to flick a cocktail stick and turn it into like a dart that goes through like it went into an apple he just flicks it with one hand so you can also put your little cocktail sticks in there have a little cocktail umbrella wow. in case you need to jump out of a high rise <laughs> building or entertain entertain the, the villain well like uh, almost like hypnotising <laughs> yeah. your cocktail umbrella yeah, yeah or you could hide behind it or you could turn yourself into a woman I love it. <laughs> you could have a little disguise. Oh, there's lots of uses for <laughs> like all of us. You know, you know, like in um, cartoons where like Bugs Bunny to turn into a female Bugs Bunny would just put a bow on. Yeah, like, uh, suddenly yeah, it's a yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all you need—a little cocktail umbrella. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea of like a little kit of just little cocktail gadgets that can transform your world. That's a really cool idea, actually, isn't it? it like is, a little, atta it? a little attaché case of like, yeah, <laughs> like a Secret Service cocktail. <laughs> Yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, so what do you think of the cocktail? I think it, I think it's really nice. Yeah, mm. I really like it. I think it's an interesting kind of mix with the bourbon as well. It's definitely got a feeling of like summer afternoons watching the waves on, on high up on a cliff or maybe a sand dune. Yeah, it's a sand dune cocktail or a cliff cocktail. And then, and then you've got like <laughs> little tufty bits of grass and there's a little tree coming out, coming out the rock. And then a little bird flies down onto it. A little bird of paradise. That's a plant actually, isn't it? One of those as well. Yeah, okay. Just everything paradise. Yeah. And you just contemplate the sun going down. And for that blissful cocktail, you couldn't give a shit about anything. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that sounds lovely. I've never been to Hawaii. I'm guessing you haven't. No, either. I haven't, no. I asked a guy at work who I know that he'd been to Hawaii, and I said, what was it like? And he said, when it rained, the entire island smelt like roses. Oh, wow. And then he said, not the crappy roses you get here, like 
heavenly roses. <laughs> I just think like um, Hawaiian sort of men and women, they just look very sort of healthy. They've got the sun. They've got yeah. the nice environment to be in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking of pasty Europeans now. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Like, I just feel like, you know... I mean, you know, I've got a desk job. I don't know, and I'm inside all the time, and I'm white. I'm not just like I'm. Not, I'm not just a white man. I'm. I am a white man. I am white. <laughs> if I take my shirt off, it blinds people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I'm. And the thing is, I'm so white. You can see my blue veins. So I'm not actually white. I'm blue. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, and I've got freckles. And and after about ten years of tanning. I get a few more freckles, and that's me tanning. That's why all, all us pasty Europeans want tans, isn't it? To hide all the like the we're pink and blue and white, yeah. and we're not a good colour scheme. But the thing is, if you tan, <laughs> if you tan and you're 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 white and European, if you tan too much, you just end up like a leather bag. There's lots of people in Brighton like that, aren't there? Yes, like people that you know have lived yeah. here for forty years and and have just been sitting out <laughs> every sunny day, and you're like, like old leather. <laughs> You're like old cracked leather, yeah, isn't it? Um, so why are we talking about Hawaiian men this episode? The reason why we're talking about Hawaiian men is that they're two very famous characters from Waikiki. Right, okay. Completely different to each other. So we go down one path with Charlie Chan, and we're going into detective fiction and talking about Charlie Chan. Charlie, is Ch- Charlie Chan an, an actual real person? Sort of. Sort of. I'll explain. Okay. So we're going to talk about him a bit and detective fiction, and then we're going to talk about Duke Kahanamoku. Wow, Duke Kahanamoku. And he was a surfer. Wow. And a swimmer. And we're going to talk about him. And then... <laughs> You'd hope he's a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, there's a link that does connect them both other than just place to bring it all back around in the end. Let's talk about Charlie Chan first. That's a champ. Have you heard of Charlie Chan? Yeah, I kind of have because I think like Charlie Chan is just a name that you know. Like, growing up, Charlie Chan, it just feels like... I mean, it kind of feels like a racial slur, to be honest. Yeah. Doesn't it? That's why I was kind of a bit like, wow, is that actually someone called Charlie Chan? Well, Charlie Chan was a fictional character. Right. But he was based on a real person. So, story about Charlie Chan is... There was an American author called Earl de Biggers, and he was on holiday in Hawaii in 1920. And so, while he was staying in Waikiki, at the Halikalani... He was inspired to start writing a murder mystery that's set in Waikiki in Hawaii. And he actually named that book House Without a Key. Right. Started writing it. When he got back to America, it's like quite a few years later, doing research for the book, he's reading newspapers, and he comes across the true exploits of a Chinese detective oh, who, right. who lived in Hawaii called Chang Apana. He was a Chinese-Hawaiian member of the Honolulu Police Department. <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was like um, yawning and burping at the same oh, time, okay. like hiccuping, but trying to do it silently. Okay. I thought you were doing like a fish impression. <laughs> that's, what, that's kind of what I was doing. <laughs> okay. I was kind of sucking it, sucking it in whilst it was going out. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like, um, it just instinctively did it. You're a fascinating man, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what you get up to when you think people aren't looking. <laughs> <laughs> I bet when Josh listens to that, if it if it makes the cut, it'll be like I know exactly what, what he gets up to. Yeah. Okay. So 
Elder Biggers, writing this book, comes across this real-life Chinese Hawaiian detective called Chang Apana and decides to create a fictional version of him called Charlie Chan. Ah, right. Who then appears in the book. But he'd already started writing the book, so this is why in the first Charlie Chan novel, House Without a Key, Charlie Chan doesn't actually appear until page 89. Right. I think the associations we have now of, of Charlie Chan is like a racist stereotype. Yes. But actually, Charlie Chan was created as an alternative to the what you used to call the yellow peril stereotypes of Asians or oh, Chinese. Oh, okay. Right. You know, when you had like villains like Fu Manchu. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. here's Charlie Chan, who's like a really smart goodie. Right, right, right. It's fighting crime. Yeah. Yeah, so there were six Charlie Chan novels, and I found this quite interesting. So, like, you know, like, we think today of kind of, oh, my God, these franchises. There were 49 Charlie Chan films. 49? 49, and that was just the American ones. Right. He was really popular in China, so there were also five China. On top of the 49 American ones, there's also five Chinese Charlie Chan films and three Spanish ones. Right, right, right. And, yeah, for the next 50 years, Charlie Chan was like a big franchise. And that's Oh, all- so that's where I know from then yeah there were literally 57 charlie chan movies that's insane there were tv shows there were comics there were um radio dramas i feel like things when they were like back then like when something was successful they just ran for a really long time yeah and amazingly how long that ran because basically that went from the 1920s and i think the last charlie chan movie was in the 1970s. Right. Why do you think it finished? I would guess because it had become its own stereotype. Right, Maybe. right, right. Maybe they played away from the Yellow Peril Fu Manchu stereotype, but now it's become, oh, the inscrutable Chinese man. Because I was wondering if, if it was something also to do with Bruce Lee becoming, and Kung Fu becoming really, really um, oh, successful. Right. Yeah. In, and that was like the new oriental phase because it's kind of interesting okay i like that theory yeah do you know what i mean it kind of like had morphed into now bruce lee kung fu that's the really cool thing yeah but also you also had the program kung fu the series oh is that is that what the theme shoot everybody loves kung fu fighting no it's the fastest lightning it was like one of those uh, (laughs) it's one of my favorite songs okay yeah i also like war What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again. So, yeah, sorry. What were you trying to say? (laughs) I don't even know. No, I'm so sorry, man. I've been really rude. That was really rude of me. I was was genuinely uh, trying to be interested. (laughs) That sounds really bad. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely trying to be interested. <laughs> no, sorry, what were you saying? Should we like can we just rewind that? Um I was talking about Kung Fu being a big series in the nineteen seventies with David Carradine. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you used to watch that? Yeah, but I don't really remember it. I remember the feeling of it more than any details. Was that was that like Kung Fu mixed with cops? No, he was like a kind of um they reference it, don't they, in pulp fiction where he's gonna be like, Oh, I'm gonna be like the guy from Kung Fu, just this guy walking the earth. Oh, is that what that's from? Samuel Jackson makes his reference. That's that's what I'm going to do. Ah, I'm gonna right. Just walk the earth, use my powers for good. And is that what he does in Kung Fu? He kind of walks the earth yeah, and just, just wanders solves. around. So he's a bit like the littlest hobo, but with Kung Fu. All those series had that premise, didn't they? Right. Someone, someone just on this endless journey and they'd meet characters and kind of help them out or help them solve their problems. Yeah, actually, when you think back to that period, you had that, you had the A-Team, you had Quantum Leap. 
Um, oh, quantum leap. Oh, quantum leap. So we're trying to wonder why Charlie Chan stopped. His time had just played out. Did you did you watch any of his films? No. Was that a bit before your time? Yeah, nineteen twenty was a bit before my time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, but you said it finished in the 50s in the 70s in the 70s that's what i mean like I because my, you know I, like I, I in the 80s i grew up watching stuff from the 70s and the 60s you know like yeah. i used to watch thunderbirds and captain scarlet and you know do you know what i mean yeah but but this is like it's like poirot kids don't watch poirot they don't watch agatha christie movies i used to watch poirot with okay. my gran <laughs> i loved okay. it okay well, columbo maybe i used to watch columbo as well yeah okay i love columbo <laughs> Oh, wow, man. <laughs> just one more thing. <laughs> it was always just the one thing, wasn't it? And yeah. If, if, if they literally thing. just stopped him there and yeah. kicked him out, then they would be off scot-free. Drive it's away. Funny, as, as a kid, I, I found all that stuff really boring. Did but, you? But I did watch... I had a girlfriend a few years ago who was obsessed with Columbo and had like lo- all the box sets. Oh, really? And so I ended up watching loads and loads of Columbo and was like, <laughs> I was amazed at how good it was. It, I'm just imagining like you coming back after a romantic night out and then like her like dimming the lights and then you getting on the bed and be like, ooh. And then her coming out in like a Mac with a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> ah, just one more thing. <laughs> oh oh, you really are into Columbo (laughs) it's really nostalgic memories for me you know Columbo obviously Angela Lansbury Murder She Wrote yeah Um, Diagnosis Murder with Dick Van Dyke loved that I don't remember that Um, pretty much like any daytime detective show because I grew up my gran used to watch those Quincy Quincy oh (laughs) I found all those shows really depressing (laughs) really why is that I like science fiction and action there was a bit of action they were all just middle aged men and women just being beige no I love the theory about Angela Lansbury that she's actually the murderer yeah that's a good one yeah so, so we, so we were talking about Charlie Chan, and, and you've got a great photo of him, hadn't you, with with him all like dressed up? Well, that was um like um David Carradine in Kung Fu. The actor who played Charlie Chan wasn't Asian. Oh right, yeah, he was a Swedish guy. Um, <laughs> this- called, he was actually yeah, he was a Swedish actor called Warner Oland. Right, who played him in sixteen films, and he just looked a bit Asian. <laughs> And like I back know that then, weird, but he did look a bit Asian. Like back then, it was just like you look a bit Asian, you can do Charlie Chan. Yeah, it's like you're good enough. Originally, they did actually try Asian actors. Audiences didn't like that. Oh, really? That was like the twenties and uh, oh, early thirties. It was too Asian. It was too Asian because he was actually Asian. Right, right. So then they got this old guy Warner Oland, and he played him in sixteen movies. And then after he died, an American actor called Sidney Toler, who didn't look Asian, they just made him look Asian, played him, and he played him in twenty-two movies. It's actually, you know, it's kind of interesting actually, like the xenophobia of of the oldie days, like just how genuinely frightened people were of being taken over all the time. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <gasps> can't have a an Asian man on TV. <gasps> That'd be it. Yeah. It's just kind of. It's just. It's just. I find it. I find it quite interesting. That anyway. Sorry, you you were you were saying, and I just interrupted. No, that was it. It just got me curious about um detective fiction. Like, when did detective fiction start? So I was looking at when the first detective fiction was. So people say that there were kind of detective fiction tropes in ancient religious texts. Even the Bible has some bits that are a bit like detective stories. But generally speaking, the first English-speaking detective novel, eighteen. 1841 
Edgar Allan Poe again, who we talked about in the Sherry Cobbler episode. His novel, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, that's generally regarded as the first detective novel. It has all the tropes, like there's a murder, there are various suspects, uh, there's a detective who questions the suspects and then reveals the answer at the end. It has that framework that has stayed in place ever since. Right, right. So, and so I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, that is interesting. So that was the first formula, was it? Yeah, and his his um, detective was C. Auguste Dupin. And when that book was written, the word detective right. hadn't been used in English yet. Oh, really? Why is that? It just wasn't a word that was in the English language yet. Really? Yeah. So what did we call detectives then? I don't know. Investigators? No idea. Look it up. Mid-19th century from Detect. The noun was originally short for detective policeman. Okay. So Interesting. So, like, shortly after the publication of this novel is when the word started to be used. Aware that we're always talking about guys in, in these podcasts as well. So there It's because po- I'm a big raging homosexual. Well, that's part of it. So, I did think it was worth also mentioning that the second oldest modern detective story was written by Louisa May Alcott, who was the author of Little Women, who most people have heard of. Oh, Little, interesting. Little Women. Oh, she wrote, she wrote a detective series. Yeah. Well, she wrote, she wrote a detective novel thriller called VV or Plots and Counterplots. Not the best title for VV. The initials VV. I don't know what that stands for, but she also wrote it under a pseudonym as well. Well, what was her pseudonym? I didn't make a note of it, but it was a male pseudonym. Well, yeah, I was going to say, because J.K. Rowling writes detective stories under a pseudonym, a male pseudonym. Yeah, right. Because um, apparently just detective or crime or courtroom, anything to do with law, you you get more sales as a a man. So a lot of women Mm, actually write under the pseudonym of a man just because it's some sort of psychological imprinting somehow, some sort of marketing imprinting that we only think men can talk. I mean, it is crazy, the kind of machismo of the world, isn't it? But there's probably... Things like that that are flipped around for other literary genres, though, where men are writing as women because the people buy certain genres and they expect women to have written them. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if, like, maybe like romance is is a, yeah. a, a female dominated market. Yeah. The only other little note I made about this was that Louisa May Alcott's character in that novel was a detective called Antoine Dupres, and it was a parody of Poe's detective Dupin. But I really liked that her detective was less concerned with solving the crime as he was in setting it up in a way to reveal the solution with a dramatic flourish. <laughs> I love it. That's like me. Yeah. It did make me think of you. It was. So he was trying to solve it. But what was more important was that he got a dramatic flourish at the end. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. I love your like your your movement. Well, I you did, did do a flourish then. <laughs> yeah, but that's very prescient as well, isn't it? Because that's that became part of the trope that yes. the detectives always reveal the end with with some sort of flourish. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. She she was the one who established that. Um, kind of answered it because I was going to ask you about your favourite detective fiction, and you've told me loads. I'm going to say that mine. If I had one as a kid, it was Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo? Yeah. It's like one of those things where, like, the music or just seeing the imagery yeah. instantly transports me back to that feeling of a kid and watching Scooby-Doo. Oh, just really? Love it, loving just it. loving it. Yeah. Scooby-Dooby-Doo, where are you? We got some work to do now. Good childhood memories. Yeah. What about Scrappy-Doo? Fuck Scrappy-Doo. <laughs> he was really annoying, wasn't he? Yeah. 
I mean, I just loved how fucking stoned, the, like, Scooby and Shaggy were. That you didn't get as a kid at all, did no, you? No, no. Watching it as an adult, it's so obvious. Yeah, the Scooby snacks Scooby and all that snacks. sort of stuff. Like, yeah, yeah Scooby-Doo was amazing. Um, actually, funny enough, yeah, my favourite one of all time, and you haven't seen it, was Diagnosis Murder. Oh, okay. I absolutely loved it. Dick Van Dyke, you know, kind of in retirement. The thing I loved about it... Was he a doctor? He was a doctor, right. yeah. And um, he was very kooky. The thing I loved about it is that he got his son, Barry Van Dyke, to be the policeman. And then his son, uh, I think Adam Van Dyke, was in it as well. So it was like three generations oh, wow. of um, Dick Van Dyke's in it. That's cool. And his son, I had a massive crush on. He was like a, a Californian surfer blonde-haired surfer guy. Fathers and sons and surfing, you couldn't have linked better into our next character. Oh my God, it's almost like telepathy, man. It's almost like we know what we're doing. We do. It's telepathy, yeah. man. We're like, we like surf the wave uh, brains of each other's minds without even realising. You know, I was saying I went to the um, doctors today. Right. And I had that experience with the practice nurse that I saw. Right. It was well, lovely. You read into her mind. Yeah, she was kind of trying to explain something to me, yeah. and and I went, oh, like and blah blah, and we were we were constantly starting and not finishing each other's sentences, and she's going, it's like we've got we've got a brain thing going on here. Wow! And at one point, because she was doing stuff to do with my hearing, she sang to me, and I'm like, this is the best visit to the doctors I've ever had. What did she sing? Okay, she sang a bit of opera. Really? Yeah, she was quite wow. she was quite mad. Wow! But in a really nice way. Did you get a number? <laughs> she was a bit older. Ah, I just feel it like wasn't on that level. We weren't <laughs> connecting romantically. Just... We were connecting in a brain empath way. I know what you mean, though. Like you know, when you have those moments with strangers, and it makes you realise that actually we don't need to be in our little little box. There's someone on my acting course who um, I really admire the way that he engages with the public. I, I I sort of commented to him about it. It's really lovely, like, and and he was in Sainsbury's and he bought some cigarettes and and then you know he sort of made the the cashier laugh and and I said to him, oh man, that's so nice because I'm such a grumpy a grumpy fuck most of the time. And he said, oh well, you know, she's just in Sainsbury's all day, isn't it? You know, if I can make her laugh, make her her day go that little bit quicker, why not? And I thought, oh god, you're so nice. Why can't I be nice? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, why can't you be nice? Because I'm a cunt! <laughs> <laughs> The sons and surf. Okay, so I was going to tell you about a guy called Duke Kahanamoku. Oh, yeah, that was it. That was who, the other path. He said you think you might have heard of before. Mm, I definitely recognise him. There's a, there's a documentary I saw years ago at the Duke of York's, which was right. Riding Giants, okay. which is all about the history of surfing. Right. And mainly focusing on the pioneers of modern day surfing. And I think he was definitely one of them, or the one. That's exactly who he was. He was the pioneer of modern day surfing. Oh, really? So he's he's the big kahuna? He is, yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So Waikiki, back in the 1800s, Waikiki was a retreat for Hawaiian royalty. Ah, oh, right. And in the late 18th century, when Captain Cook arrived in the Hawaiian Islands, and the Western missionaries came along after that, and that kind of killed surfing. 
Right, as, as I imagine it would. So, surf- Religion killed surfing. Basically, religion killed surfing. Because, you know, surfing started off with the Hawaiians on their enormous wooden boards. That's, oh, that's really? where surfing started. Well, was it was it like a recreation? Yeah. Oh, it was? Yeah, but it was also, you know, had some spiritual element to it as well. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, white missionaries killed surfing, Hawaiian Fucking surfing. Hell, Don't you just find that religion, like, particularly white, yeah. like, kind of missionary, kind of like, it just kills so much, doesn't it? Just it takes the fun out of everything. <laughs> it really fucking does, doesn't yeah. it? Like, Yeah, I totally agree with you. But then the white influence over the Hawaiian Islands started to recede and then surfing started to come back. So you had Duke Kahanamoku, who was born in 1890, and his parents were direct descendants of Kamahamaha the Great, who was the founder and the first ruler of the Hawaiian Islands. Right. And so, early 20th century, Duke Kahanamoku was a well-known surfer in Waikiki. Right. And he was an exceptionally good swimmer. Right. And an exceptionally good surfer. And... Oh, there was so... He did so much in his life. So many, like, amazing things. He was very cool. Fastest swimmer in the world. He's been in five Olympics. Yeah. The first one he was in was in 1912, and he won gold. And then he was in every subsequent Olympics. Always won the gold. But when he wasn't competing, he kind of struggled to kind of what to do with himself. So he used to do exhibitions, like swimming exhibitions and surfing exhibitions. And basically, he is the guy who was like single-handedly responsible for popularizing surfing in California and Australia. He's called the father of surfing. Oh, is he? Oh, really? He did exhibition surfing there, and people just went crazy for surfing. Oh, interesting. What's exhibition surfing? Just when you're showing what you can do. Right. Like how you do it and what you can do. And he was doing all kinds of tricks, you know, like doing handstands and stuff. And he's also using boards like his ancestors. So he's using these enormous 16-foot redwood boards that are like 114 pounds. They're incredibly heavy. They're they're really long. They're huge. You've got photographs here. pictures here, here, yeah. And, like, they are twice the length of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. It's 13 to 16 foot. It's incredible, isn't it? Like, two, yeah, twice to three times the length of him. Yeah. And they're about the same width as him. He's a very handsome man. He's he very is. like in great yeah. shape, very athletic, and very smiley. He looks like a nice chap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looks like a laid-back, proper surfer chap, or surfer dude, I should say. Surfer chap. There's <laughs> not because the, I mean because this was so long ago. Like that, that first Olympics was 1912. It was basically like the 1920s and 30s, but particularly the 20s when he was at his peak because he's 20 in 1910. Right. His right. two titles: Father of Surfing and King of the Swimmers. Oh my God, that's just greedy. Well, if you got it. If you got it, man, yeah, he's if like. You got it. It's just amazing, isn't it, to think of them riding these massive. They're almost like boats, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? And it's interesting, is I guess the technology. It's interesting the technology how it's changed mm. over the years and how it's got more sophisticated. Surfing, I think, is very much very similar to sort of skateboarding in the sense of the way that it kind of rose, almost like the waves. Like you know, the tide goes out and comes in. The fashion of it came in and mm. came out over the periods and, and it yeah. kind of bubbles up and, and then recedes because obviously there was a massive influx in the 50s wasn't there surfing yeah and then la- and then also skateboarding came up in the 50s mm-hmm. as well skateboarding is essentially surfing on concrete isn't it oh yeah definitely yeah. definitely 
And it was actually, it was only until really the Dogtown and the Zed Boys, the Zephyr team, mm. because they were all surfers and they used to use the skateboards, the longboards, like surfboards. Mm. They used to get really low down to the ground. Have you, know, have you seen the documentary? I've seen clips of it, yeah. It's a really good documentary. And then they brought in this kind of idea of, of the sidewalk surfer. And, mm. and they, brought, they brought skateboarding back to being cool. Because mm. actually before that, the tricks that they would do were, were quite sort of um, quite exhibitionist. They would kind of pirouette around a lot and everything. It was right. quite upright, mm. quite stuffy. And then the Zephyr team kind of tore all that up because they brought the surfing kind of attitude. And a bit of punk attitude, wasn't there? punk yeah. attitude. And then, and then they would start um, riding concrete um, bowls, you know, the, the swimming pools. Oh, when they yeah, didn't right, have yeah. any water in them, they would break into people's backyards. And then they brought in that whole kind of craze of, you know, carving the concrete. Really fascinating. I wish I could do shit like that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I used to skateboard when I was a teenager, but I could just go along and go down a bit of a hill. And all my other friends who were much thinner and lighter than me could go and do a cool trick. And, yeah. and it was funny because I was the first one in my group to skateboard, but then everyone else started doing it. And then everyone totally was better than me. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, oh well. <laughs> you led them and then they followed in your wake. And then they totally surpassed me. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you've just got to have that kind of, um, you've got to be a type of person to like not fear the concrete. You yeah. can't fear the ocean. You can't fear the waves. I couldn't yeah. surf at all because I fucking hate the the water and the, and the, <laughs> the sharks, man. Fucking hell. <laughs> fucking sharks. Like, they're actually swimming where there are sharks. Like And they yeah. look like giant seal to sharks. Do you know what I mean? I guess. I keep forgetting you do genuinely have a fear of sharks. Fucking you? hell, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Like, I, you know, I like one of my favourite things to do is to watch YouTube videos of surfers coming into close contact contact with sharks really? and there's quite a few now because like you know obviously surfers are like they have drones follow them now and everything right, so right. you know you can see these aerial shots of like fucking sharks underneath them and and not realizing how close they are right. oh, to sharks as wow. well okay yeah. you know there's this one of a surfer and the shark literally like comes up out the water to try and take a little nibble of him but Shit. misses him you know and you're just like fucking hell you don't realize how close you are to like being yeah. Um, Kawabunga Chunga. They'd, they'd get. I, <laughs> I don't mean, know if that's, that's that right. <laughs> what was that phrase? What? Kawabunga Chunga. <laughs> that's a good phrase. Let me tell you a few of the other little things that Duke Kahanamoku did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me more about him. So, in 1925, he was in California. There's a ship that's sinking. Right. And he rescued eight drowning men on a surfboard. Oh, wow. Not all at once. Right. He went and got one, brought him back, then went and get the next one. Wow. He, he saved eight guys. Newport's police chief at the time called Duke's efforts the most superhuman surfboard rescue act the world has ever seen. And that incident caused US lifeguards to begin using surfboards. Right, right. He started that because right. he showed this is how you can use them to save people's lives. Right. I think that's really cool. I found on YouTube, This Is Your Life from the 60s. And some of the guys that he saved are brought back onto that show. They've never seen him since he put them on the beach. Oh, my God. It was really moving. Mr. you must have thought it was all over when those waves came crashing yeah. down on you, sir. Duke, Duke, I haven't seen you since you put me on the beach that's at Balboa. Yeah. And uh, you left me there. And we were in a hurry to get back to the boat to make a rescue of the other ones on the boat, which you did a marvelous job of. Thank you. And I have waited 
32 years to thank you tonight. A long time since I've seen you. I want to thank you again for the rescuing me and saving my life. It's one of the long time. That's amazing, isn't that? That's incredible. It was lovely, and he's so he's, he's such a like his countenance. He's very kind of quiet and modest, and just comes across as a really sweet guy. In that, four years later, he rode a single wave for over a mile, and that record stayed for decades. Wow, he rode it for a mile for a on mile. a single wave. Wow, that was a pretty superhuman God, that's thing. That's quite mad, isn't it? But he wasn't surfing or sort of competing. He did sort of struggle to find to find work, basically. Right. So in the 1920s, he was world famous. People loved him. He was a real hero. So they thought, yeah, you know, he made a bid for Hollywood, but they only ever gave him the native roles. Oh, you can play the native right. king or the native whatever in this, this movie. Right. Racism stopped him getting beyond those supporting roles. Yeah, and so linking back to Charlie Chan, one of the movies that he was in was a film of The Black Camel, which was a Charlie Chan movie. So oh, no way! Duke Kahanamoku was in a Charlie Chan movie. Oh my God, so the paths intersect and, come and they come together. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's amazing. The last part of his life, from 1934 to 1959, he served as the sheriff of Honolulu. Oh, really? Spent 15 years as a sheriff. He was re-elected 13 times. Wow. And in 1968, he died, and he was given a Waikiki Beach Boy funeral, and they rode his ashes out to sea. All the surfers took wow. his ashes out to sea. Wow. And thousands of people turned up to watch his what funeral. What life. Yeah. What life. And weirdly... I didn't know this, but weirdly, this year, a documentary about him has come out called Waterman. Oh, cool. It's literally just coming out, this documentary. Oh, do you know what you can watch it on? Is it on Netflix? I think it's coming out the cinemas. Oh, is it? Oh, I'd love to see something like that. Yeah, look out for Waterman, which is all about Duke Kahanamoku. Take me down to the paradise city where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. Take me. Like I said, growing up with skateboarding, you know, Sidewalk Surfer magazine. I love the idea of surfing and surfers. My my archetype of who I really wanted to be in a relationship with when I was a teenager was a blonde-haired Californian surfer. Right. Like, oh, oh my God, that was just, yeah. just the archetype of what I would have loved, you know. And it's really funny, actually, because actually my partner couldn't be any any far from it you know uh a mixed race um half jamaican half british you know guy from gloucester who i absolutely <laughs> love to bits do you yeah. know what i mean you know yeah. i love josh to bits and I, and I find that interesting when people sort of talk about you know the archetype of what they 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 kind of always wanted you know and i and i just love it that you know actually love doesn't really have any of that in it you just find the person that just strikes that chord with you isn't it and then that's it it's interesting what you were saying about how the Hawaiians had a spiritualism with it. Because mm. when you think about um, a lot of the surfing films, particularly like Point Break, mm -hmm. where uh, Patrick Swayze's character, I can't remember what his name is, 
Yes, um, yeah. he's always like ride the wave, man. Surfing's the source. He's yeah. very much into like the spiritualism of surfing, but he's actually just a bank robber at the same time. <laughs> that's yeah, 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 and that's also really there in um, Big Wednesday, isn't it? Which is one of my favourite. How is it, Big movies. Wednesday? Well, I don't think I've seen that. Came out in the seventies, but it feels more sixties actually. Gary Busey's in it. How is he? So it's about. Oh, so is that why he was cast in Point Break? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it's about these four guys and them growing up as surfers. Right. Because they they start off in the 50s. Right. And then the 60s come in. Yeah. And then they start to get old and they've kind of, they've lost that connection. It's all about that connection to the waves and they've lost that connection. Ah, right. And one, they have to refind it. Yeah, at the end, they all kind of come together again for like a last riding. And, and it's got that, there's always like the mythical wave, isn't there? It's, oh, and that's again in Point Break, they have yeah, the mythical wave, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah, Kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting from an outside, like looking in. Because, you know, like I kind of, um, you know, like when I was a teenager, I had long hair and, you know, I liked hippie sort of elements and traveler elements and everything. But with the surfing thing, I love the idea of it, but I fucking hate the water. <laughs> slight, and also, I don't slight. like the... Yeah, and also, I don't really like beaches. And I don't really like being out in the sun all the fucking time either, because I just get hot <laughs> and I burn. And, you know, so there's all this kind of thing of, like, you know, what I wanted to be with the sort of stark reality of, like, who I actually am. And I think, you know, finally, after, you know, 37 years, I'm actually becoming who I am. Because I'm, I'm, I've am I'm let go of all of those, all, mm. all those kind of, like, manufactured ideas of, of what you want to be and yeah. to who you actually are. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're reminding me of my early teenage years, my aspirations. I wanted to live in a van yeah. and be a biker. That, I love it. That was all I wanted to do. I wanted to ride motorbikes. I'd never ridden a motorbike, but I wanted to live in a van. And live in a van? Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever... Well, you did ride motorbikes. I did ride motorbikes, yeah. I Did, did you ever live bit. in a van? I never lived in a van. I wanted to be a, a, a live-in-a-van man. Did you? Yeah. You know, so I fucking hate paying rent, but the thing is, I can't drive... So that's a bit of a stickler. And then, so I was kind of like, I went through like in my 20s, I was like, I could live in a van and have an art studio and then kind of sleep in the van and then have my art studio and then it would be really cheap rent. I was really into customised stuff like the bikes. And so I really wanted a customised van. Yeah. That looked really cool with yeah. dark glass windows. Yeah. Kind of thing. Bubble windows. And then have the little like sleeper bit that pops up and then had like a little trailer behind the van with useful shit in it. And in the, in the inside, side was basically like a pimp lounge yeah 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 i wasn't thinking things through practically your sex wagon there definitely wasn't a kettle in there (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was my (laughs) sex wagon (laughs) (laughs) yeah but you're right you'd need another trailer for like your your teacups (laughs) yeah you know your clothes and your clothes and all the actual stuff you need to live yeah yeah Yeah. they're called um rubber tramps aren't they in uh in america is that name for yeah and i think if you're in a country like america you can be a, a rubber tramp but i think like if you're a rubber tramp in america you can ride through the seasons so yeah, you can right. you know you can go up uh, in north when it's summer and then you can go down south when it's uh, winter it doesn't appeal to me anymore like i watched nomadland recently right it depressed the fuck out of me. did it yeah 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 you still gotta get money from somewhere don't you because like francis mcdormand just ends up fucking working in amazon warehouses oh god that's not nice no 
How else do you make money? Um, you make uh, friendship bracelets and sell them on the street. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. braid people's hair. Henna tattoos. I guess I'm thinking of those, the people in Nomadland, and I guess a lot of them are kind of old, slightly older people, almost like they've retired to this nomad lifestyle. Mm. Like a lot of like wealthier Americans get RVs, don't they, and just drive endlessly around the country in their enormous RVs. Well, I think in America you can do that because America's massive and yeah. there's like amazing places that you can drive to. I think in Britain you could drive to the Lake District and then drive to the Peak District and then drive to Scotland and then drive through Wales. You could do it in a summer. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and everything's fucking expensive in Britain anyway. So you could probably you 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 still have to have your pension to pay for it all. Did you watch any of um, Tom Green's videos when he was doing that? Who's Tom Green? Tom Green's that American comedian. Right. He spent quite a long time living in a van. Right. And he would post these videos from these, all these different places he went to. And he, and he would often seek out just unpopulated places. Right. And ancient areas um, where there's no other people in ghost towns. And he would make these videos of him and his dog walking around these ghost towns. And he make, making music and videos and living in a van and just posting this. They were really good. Oh, were they? Really nice music. Really interesting just seeing these forgotten places. Wow. Fascinating. I do love that that idea. Like, I used to be a subscriber of Sideburn magazine. Do you ever have that? No. Uh, it's like a motorbike, custom motorbike magazine. Ah, Backstreet Heroes was the one Backstreet I read. Backstreet Heroes. Yeah. Backstreet Heroes just sounds a little bit like a gay porn film to me. <laughs> <laughs> Back alley heroes. Do you know we'd got so far without mentioning porn? <laughs> uh, maybe that's we, the we thing. We couldn't make it the whole way through an episode. Every episode, I have to bring it in somehow. <laughs> well done. Um, uh, yeah, well, then the leather. Mm, I love a man in leather. Yeah, they, they'd have lots of segments of that, of just, like, cool guys and, and ladies who were just, like, you know, they rock up in their van and then they get their hammock out and they've got, like, a travelling, a cool travelling dog with them. They have the campfire. But they're also, their van has a little, like, uh, rack for their motorbike so they can go off-road. They've got... And they've, their m motorbike's all cool and customised and all their clothes are, like, they, they're wearing Deus Ex clothing and they look really cool. And then I just... After a while, I just looked at these people and I was like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> I've got a job to get to and I can't do that and I can't even fucking not only can I not drive I can't even afford to drive fuck yeah, off yeah yeah but I love the idea of it all yeah. and, and all those people out there who do it hats we, off to you we salute you we salute you yeah backstreet heroes <laughs> I definitely <laughs> I definitely salute the backstreet alley heroes <laughs> I'll be seeing you later tonight boys <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what's going to get left in the episode. Right, time for the quiz. Okay. Hello, darlings. I've been waiting for you. Are you ready for Who Wants to Be a Cocktail? <laughs> Is it getting more outlandish? It's getting more outlandish every time. <laughs> okay, so, darlings, today... <laughs> on this episode. And continuing with the films is one of my favourite films. So, can you guess the cocktail? One and a half ounces of Empress 1908 gin. One and a half ounces of Prosecco. Three ounces of blood orange juice. Put in your favourite glass over ice and combine the blood orange and Prosecco. And then top up with the Empress gin. 
garnish with fresh herbs and a slice of blood orange just to clip the tip. Clip the tip? Yeah. Okay, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Right, are you ready for your three cryptic clues? Remember, this ties into the episode. It's a film. Think of the film. Are you ready for cryptic clue number one? Riding a wave into the surf, trading a football turf for sand. Cryptic clue number two. Past presidents burning a hole in your pocket while sex wax lubricates your wallet. And cryptic clue number three. Waiting to ride out the wavers of a century. Don't get caught on the vault, otherwise you'll be unlucky. And that's your three cryptic clues, darling. So, if you think you know what the film and the cocktail is, the film and the cocktail are the same this week's listeners, uh-huh. please send them in to nogarnishpod on Instagram, or you can email them in at nogarnish at fastmail.fm, and if you get it correct, you'll be put onto the list of who wants to be a cocktail winners. And at some point in the future, we will unveil a prize for the grand finale. We are keeping score now. So do tell us if you get it. And there will be a prize, like a real prize, not an imaginary one. Yes. We don't know what it is yet, but we will We've keep got some you ideas. Posted. We were talking ideas earlier. Definitely cocktails will be involved. Yes. Maybe a, a strand of my hair. An old, discarded, false eyelash. <laughs> Framed. Framed. Some old lipstick that I don't want to use anymore. (laughs) So, the last week was the dead Nazi. I love a dead Nazi. Oh, they're they're the best types of Nazis, the ones that are dead. Yeah. And the cryptic clues were, once upon a time in occupied France, a Euro war raged. Well, the film that I am talking about... Oh, right. You you got it, didn't you? Yes. Do you want to say the name? Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Bastards. Yes, that was the film. One of my favourite films. One of my favourite Quentin Tarantino films. And yes, the clues were, once upon a time in occupied France, a Euro war raged. Well, the original title was Once Upon a Time in Occupied France. And Euro War was a film that it was uh, loosely kind of uh, nodded towards. A film in the 70s, I think. And then the second clue, when needing proof of death, a double feature that grinded to a halt, a half glass of milk left by a child out of wedlock. Well, when uh, Quentin Tarantino started in Glorious Bastards, he grinded it to a halt because he went on to film Death Proof instead. And it was a double feature of a grindhouse with Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> I can never say his name. <laughs> and a half glass of milk. Well, there's famously, he leaves half a glass of milk. He drinks one glass and then leaves another half glass at the beginning of the film of Inglorious Bastards. And it's to symbolise the inner of the time and how he ruins the innocence. And then a child out of wedlock. Well, that is what a bastard is. And then the last clue. A quintessential misspelling that was by no mistake. Well, Quentin Tarantino, quintessential. Mm -hmm. And it was a purposeful misspelling to uh, differentiate it from previous movies and to give it some kind of quirk. So there we go. There's the three clues. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, goodbye, listeners. Goodbye.
Um, right. right, I'm back now. Oh, oh Princess, oh, yeah. she's a bloody... Uh, <laughs> she's a one, isn't she? God, you have to kind of put some earplugs in, don't you? <laughs> Jesus. I did notice the volume went up quite a lot when she came in. <laughs> I know. I wonder what everyone thinks in the building. You know, like, when you think about people and you think, like, when you think about your coolness, like, where you are on a coolness scale, and, and then you've got, like, the cool people. Mm. Like, hey, like, I'm cool. I've never been one of them. No, me neither. <laughs> And I've never wanted to either. I know I'm older than you, but I think maybe we've just got to an age where we can't be asked to put that much work into what we wear anymore. I find actually now I've put weight on, it's harder to dress well. well right. I think when I was thin, clothes just fitted well. They looked good. I know you mean. And now I feel like if I want to wear something, it's normally to try and hide something. <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's I, really depressing. I was thinking exactly the same thing. Most yeah. yeah, I just want to disappear into my clothes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Today, listeners, I ordered my first dress for Princess Strider. That's exciting. So I've had my first makeup session with my friend Kat. Yeah. You can see some of the makeup on uh, our Instagram page. Oh, did you post it? I've posted it, yeah. Okay. Um, so I've had my first makeup session. I've got a wig coming. I've got false eyelashes, and I've got my first dress and penny for the because I need a penny for the for the duet. Oh, because you're doing um, what's the character's name? Hair, you're doing hairspray, and you're the <laughs> I'm doing Edna, yeah, Edna, who was originally played by Divine. Yes, and yeah, John, and John Travolta, Travolta, yeah. And and my musical uh, theatre tutor wants me to dress kind of like a dowdy housewife, but. I'm not doing that. That's not happening. It's I not happening. No. No. <laughs> no. No, fuck that. Yeah. And, and, you know, if she marks me down, I don't give a shit, because it's Princess Strider's debut. But yeah, my first ever dress is arriving on Sunday. I hope it fucking fits me. You know, they're asking me my bus size and stuff, and I was like, as a man, I know I've got boobs, but I don't really want to measure them. <laughs> <laughs> But you're going to be wearing fake ones anyway, aren't you? No, I think my, I think mine are big enough to no, put, in, put in a dress anyway. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, the thing is, it's getting expensive, man. You know, it's fucking expensive being yeah. a woman. And to get some breasts, like to a proper breast, that, that, you know, like the latex ones, they're like 120 minimum. That seems quite reasonable to me. <laughs> Change your whole gender for 20 quid, 120 quid. Yeah. I bet I'll still be marked as, like, good, though. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Mediocre. Mediocre. <laughs> hey, I've had fun this evening. It's um, been great, man. I've loved it. Also, we have a little bit of a shout-out to someone who's written in. Just like to say thank you very much to Doug, who sent me on our Instagram page a picture of the Dude Abides from The Big Lebowski mm-hmm. as a Jaws poster. In the style of Jaws, I like it. So thank you very much, um, Doug. That's great. And he's also, he, he runs um, Baker Street Framing in Brighton. Oh, and okay. it's a really good framing place. I really highly recommend it. Um, but it made me think, like, because uh, you said the, that Cocktail, the movie, is the only cocktail movie out there. But then I was thinking, well actually the big Lebowski the big part of that is the white Russian it is on my list and I deliberately wrote it as the Caucasian as the Caucasian because I thought we'll, we can do black and white Russians but we'll theme it also around the big Lebowski oh amazing one um, of my favourite films as well yeah so we will do that at some point nice in the meantime we're on a bit of a run of summer drinks yeah last thing to do roll the dice see which one we're going to do next week Mm, number eight. Number eight is... Infinity. 
Oh, it's Poppy Love. Poppy Love? Yeah, we're going to drink Poppy Loves. Ah, Puppy Love. Poppy. Poppy Love. Poppy Love. Poppy Love. Yeah. <laughs> Are we in a loop? Say it again. Has it got poppies in it? It's got a liqueur made from poppies. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's going to be fascinating. I'm going to tell you all about it next episode. I didn't know you could make a liqueur out of poppies. Nor did I until I discovered it and then spent ages trying to work out what to do with it. <laughs> Does it taste like poppies? What do poppies taste like? Wait and see. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this episode. I think, like, the cocktail was so nice. I really love that. The flames. We rode the wave of no garnish tonight, and it's just, it's kind of wax lyrical. Cheers. Cheers.